Warning, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. This is the Blackwater of the Cost. The discussion with my guest was brief and fruitful. Well, my part of it was brief. But as you may surmise from the delay between then and now, the information gained led directly to a certain amount of running about, so to speak. To explain to those of you as yet unaware, I have been commissioned to devise an intriguingly specialized poison. It is not the sort of weaponry I generally produce, but certain aspects of my knowledge are pivotal in this case, and I gladly accepted the task. Certain other aspects are less readily at hand, so collecting them as quietly as possible speeds the process immensely. This sort of research does, yes, tend to attract the strenuous attention of those who wish to either prevent or abscond with the results, not to mention those from whom knowledge, equipment, or materials have been quietly acquired. It can certainly become a nuisance, but more often than one might expect, the effect is that of an information source literally coming to find me. So it came to pass that a quickly formed extended outing absorbed most of my time since I last spoke to you all, and to the one who did not require that explanation, I should be able to deliver as agreed upon, and will be ready to accept the remainder of the payment in a few weeks. Now to return to my interrupted tale. I had not eaten in perhaps two days, and in spite of my tired state, the plate of food taunted me from where I sat on the bed in my cell. It was odd to think that my would-be rescuer had more overt hostility to me in my presence than my torturer had, but curiously, for that reason, I was fairly sure that his warning not to eat what was given me was sound advice. Not realizing that I had fallen asleep, I was startled awake by the door opening. Someone I had not seen before stepped inside and held a finger to her lips. Her white hooded robes seemed unsuited to performing a rescue, but the thought of a third day in the examination room handily decided whether I would follow. We soon arrived at a door like the one in my cell. She opened it, and a moment later, Jacob joined us. He looked up at me with an expression of mild curiosity, but said nothing. In silence, we followed our furtive guide. We soon paused just out of sight of a balcony area. She checked that it was empty, then motioned us closer, and explained that she couldn't take us further undetected, but if we moved quickly without running, no one would see us. She provided directions to an outer door of the labyrinthine palace, where another of her dissident group would lead us onward. We left with cautious haste. On the way, we passed several rooms and courtyards, each possessed of at least one unlikely trait. Trees for walls, a series of suspended fountains, stairs with no apparent purpose, and so on. In one hallway I saw a human-sized automaton sitting on a bench. As we passed, it turned its head to watch us, and though it was incapable of expression, it gave the distinct impression of hopelessness. The only living things we saw were a pair of the rust-colored beasts lumbering along a colonnade on the far side of a courtyard. They did not glance our way. At last, we reached the door with a hammer-shaped symbol we were told to seek, and it unlatched without issue. Just outside, another pale gray person met us, this one in rather old-fashioned hunting clothes made of deep green velvet. He greeted us with a finger to his lips, which I imitated in response. He moved toward the nearby woods, and we followed. As we reached the first trees, he warned us to stay very close or risk becoming lost in the maze. I instinctively looked around. 
The trees were nothing like crowded together, and while a forest at night can easily confuse the unfamiliar, calling this rather park-like wood a maze seemed hyperbolic. Nevertheless, we obeyed. A few dozen steps into the forest made it all terrifyingly clear. As I watched, the trees directly ahead of us became closer together. They didn't move, they were simply closer. Our guide turned to the right, but I paused then stepped ahead without turning. By the time I had reached the closest tree, the others were too close to pass between. I had watched. They had not moved. Not in any normal meaning of the word. Instantly enthralled by the mystery, it took a moment for me to hear Jacob calling to me. Mr. Elphinstone? I blinked and looked at him. He was waiting for me beside our guide, a strangely adult look of gentle amusement on his face. I nodded and rejoined them. As we hurried along, the guide admonished me to stay close and listen. We would need to find a doorway that had been accidentally left open for the days surrounding the spring equinox. The boy and I needed to pass through the door at the same moment. If not, the door would close, and whomever was left behind would need to find a particular flower that grows in the woods. It was blue and glowed in the dark beneath the trees. If you ate it, you would be able to see the other doorways that were more hidden, but only if you believed that it would do so. Obviously, I found this entirely ridiculous. However, I kept in mind the words of the one who had apparently orchestrated my escape. It was possible that willing belief would allow an otherwise too delicate chemical exchange in the brain to succeed and provide some useful advantage. Vastly unlikely, but possible. The end of his explanation brought us to the end of the tree maze and the beginning of an open field. The forest beyond the field had a distinctly different and wilder cast than the wood we had traversed. Our guide stopped. It was as far as he would go. He pointed us in the direction of the door, described it, clearly another portal like the one I entered beside the River Tay, and urged us to waste no time. Fortunately, an eight-year-old boy can keep up with a fifty-year-old man. We ran. We paused at the border of the forest and looked back. A group of five of the pale people could be seen in the moonlight walking purposely toward us from somewhere past where we had left our guide, who of course by now was nowhere to be seen. Two of them noticed us and pointed, calling out. The group increased to a trot. We could see them drawing various archaic weapons. Just as we turned to run into the forest proper, I halted in amazement. It is difficult to describe, but the group altered both their motion and their movement. That is, their feet slowed as though walking through knee-deep water, and instead of a straight line toward us, their path described a smooth arc to our left. And most alarming of all, their travel became so fast that they were a literal blur. At the end of the arc, perhaps four or five seconds later, they were a mere few dozen yards away. Between marveling at the thing accomplished and wondering if my state of hunger was simply causing me to hallucinate, I stared, frozen in place. It wasn't until Jacob pulled up my sleeve that I came to myself. A crossbow bolt thudded into a tree next to me. We continued our flight. Some minutes later, Jacob began to lag, his child's energy running low after such a long run. We would be overtaken soon if we didn't find the door, but true to our final guide's instructions, we saw the silvery rectangle shimmering in the distance. Jacob began to cry. I first took it for exhaustion, but as we got close he sobbed, Please don't leave me here. Why the devil would I leave you here? We leave at the same time and they can't follow us. That's not what I heard. 
I heard the white lady say, whoever touches it first goes through, and the other is stuck here forever. Keep moving, keep moving. Did she actually say that? Of course she did. I have no doubt that you are meant to overhear that. Everything about this place seems to be some kind of deranged test. What I don't know is whether what you heard is true. I also had grave doubts regarding Jacob himself. The architect of my escape had suggested that the boy wasn't actually a boy. Was he one of them in disguise? Either way, his presence was certainly part of some mental game. I don't mind games if I know the rules, but I was at this moment both literally and figuratively in the dark. We hurried on, dodging fallen branches and debris in the shadows of the nighttime forest, hearing our pursuers slowly gaining on us. The promised silvery door became visible as we dodged around a rock. It appeared to be on the wall of a tiny dell, between rough cliffs heavy with trees, around and above. As we neared it, I said to the boy, Now listen carefully. If we get separated, and you find yourself near the River Tay, find my people there in Aberfeldy. Tell them I'm still alive, and will find my way back. You're not coming with me? If I can, I will. We'll find out in a moment. The oddly jovial hunting party, which made no attempt at silence, could be heard near the mouth of the little valley. Jacob hesitated by the silver curtain and drew back from it. We don't have time for fear. A bolt shattered itself against the cliff near his head, showering us with bits of gravel and wood. I shoved him into the doorway, following without pause, and nearly crashed into the rock wall of the dell. The posts and lintel were empty. Before the hunters got close enough for better aim, I leapt at the tree roots protruding from the cliff walls and began to haul myself up as quickly as I could. It had been some time since I had exerted myself as I had that day, but being hunted with deadly intent confers marvelous strength and endurance. I reached a place flat enough to stand on, to the delighted cheers of the hunting party below. They charged back out to the valley to find a quicker route. I would need to be elsewhere by the time they arrived at my landing. The Wars of the Roses are over. York is victorious, and Gloucester has nothing to do. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front, and now, instead of mounting barded steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. But I, that am not shaped for sport of tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking-glass, I, that am rudely stamped, and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph, I, that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why, I, in this weak piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to see my shadow in the sun and descant on my own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain 
and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Lots have I laid, inductions dangerous, by drunken prophecies, libels, and dreams, to set my brother Clarence and the king in deadly hate the one against the other. And if King Edward be as true and just as I am subtle, false, and treacherous, this day should Clarence closely be mewed up about a prophecy which says that G of Edward's heirs the murderer shall be. The next half hour or so seemed an eternity, hiding, dashing, searching, sometimes blindly in the dark of the woods. I needed to find that blue blossom. I was quite prepared to believe, or at least try to believe, anything necessary to get out of this situation. The trouble with that was that I now doubted everything I had been told. What was true? Any of it? A few details had come through, and they had been from my oddly hostile rescuer, who had also described the appearance and effect of this elusive flower. I clung to that, hoping it was enough of a belief in something to get to my own lands, where things were as they were, whether I believed in them or no. My more pressing trouble was having the time to search. I wasn't going to be able to look for wildflowers while dodging swords and crossbows. It was time to rearrange the board. Fifteen minutes later, the hunting party walked slowly through a narrow meadow that itself meandered between dense sections of forest. One of them was taunting me. All alone, poor mad thing. Come out and greet us. It won't hurt. For long. They passed on both sides of my hiding place, a bare bush which was easy to see through and clearly had nothing beneath it but leaves and twigs. The moment they had passed, I rolled from beneath the leaves and stepped through the branches to quietly fall in behind the last of the group. Lost and blind in the dark, lonely little mortal moppet, even the boy is gone. Who will save you now? I slid the hunting knife from the sheath on the rear guard hunter's hip, then slammed its pommel into the base of his skull. I caught the crossbow from him as he fell senseless, and with one hand aimed it toward the rest of the party. The others turned, startled, and began to bring up their crossbows. None of that. Toss those over here, and follow with the swords. They smirked and continued raising their weapons. Holding the knife by the back of its blade, I raised it to beside my face, handle up, as though I might have a shave. Ooh, you have a knife. Does that make you dangerous? Don't be daft. I make the knife dangerous. All but one of them hesitated. An instant later, the knife was buried in the bald one's foot, and my now-emptied hand moved to steady my aim. His crossbow went off as he dropped it, the bolt ricocheting past my shoulder. Their leader looked mildly down at her shrieking companion, then back to me. Her face betrayed annoyance, though her voice remained a condescending purr. As she and the others reluctantly tossed their weapons in a pile at my feet, she said, "'We're just having a bit of fun, you know.' A game. Splendid. I love games. Let's play a different one. It would be some time before the hunting party could continue the hunt. I would do well to make good use of the uncertain amount of delay. Over the next hour or so, I looked for the blue flower. My success only came when I realized that the flower might literally glow in the dark, and thus would be far easier to spot beneath the forest canopy than in the moonlight. Sure enough, the odd little flower was there, a tiny blue lantern on a stalk a few inches above what looked like 
some kind of ground-level sage. I plucked it, and the light did not falter. It was exactly the blue of the glow I had seen by the river, brilliant to my eyes, yet illuminating almost nothing. Merely a clear, pure blue, but both hard to focus on and hard to look away from. I, of course, had lived all my life among people who not only related fairy tales, but earnestly believed in them, even those which contradicted each other. Wherever I was certainly seemed like the source of these kind of legends. One well-established warning from all the folklore was not to eat anything while in the fairy realms. Now, Jacob had supposedly enjoyed excellent food and had recently returned through the silvery door without trouble. However, my rescuer had warned me against eating anything given me. Soon afterward, my guide through the palace, apparently part of his group, had explained that I may need to eat this flower in order to leave. My hunger was by now enough to make clear thinking difficult. The only fact I could bring to bear in making a decision was my complete lack of any other notion of how to return home. Nothing in this place made much sense, which perversely gave me confidence that something within the flower would have the promised effect. After only the slightest additional hesitation, I ate it. I remember its flavor, like mild cucumber with a faint sweet perfume. I wondered how long it would take to make any difference. I began walking again. As I entered a clearing, a few faint rectangles of silver became visible to me at apparently random distances and directions. Though I couldn't see the door frames from where I stood, they could hardly be anything else. I hoped. I fixed my eye on what seemed the closest and homed in on it as fast as I could. A mere dozen yards from my goal, I saw that I was no longer alone. Daneslave stood on one side of the door, his assistants on the other. I stopped and raised my crossbow. Don't even think of trying to stop me. I wouldn't dream of it. You'll notice we aren't between you and the portal. A wise choice. If we were, did you plan to somehow shoot all three of us? No, only you. Aiming for the leader? You'd be surprised how few ever think of that. But look, we are here to make sure you get through the door successfully. I see the confusion on your face. Let me ask you a question. How did we know to come to this portal? I had, in fact, been wondering that very thing, but the implications were more than I could pass at that moment. Dainsleif smiled broadly. You begin to understand. Yes, this is a game with games within it. We were quite finished with your treatments when you were rescued, though whether your curiously clever cadre of rescuers knows this, ah, that is a tale for another time. And no time soon, I think, hmm? But here you are. You have had your medicine, and now it is time to leave. But you must leave the weapons here. It would not do for them to return with you. We'll just take those. Thank you. And now you may leave. In fact, I insist. Out. Not that you will remember to worry. But don't worry. The madness that attends our longer-term visitors won't affect you. No, no, not for quite some time. Not until you are ready for it. Not until you are ready to be ever so delicately cracked and returned for the purpose for which you were brought here now. And so I speak directly to that you which you have yet to become. When you recall my words again, it will be nearly time for us to meet again. 
Hello, Magnus. I'll see you again soon. And goodbye, Magnus. I'll not see you again for what you think is quite a long time. With that, and with mockingly ceremonious gestures, the three of them ushered me through the silvery curtain. Then I woke in my rented room in Aberfeldy. My coach driver was present, ringing his cap and wearing a worried expression. A doctor was there as well. Why they had snuck in during the night was quite beyond me, and I was naturally startled and annoyed. What are you doing here? What is it? You are looking at me like I've been ill for three days, but I feel entirely fine. Does that exchange glance say, through not saying, that I have been ill for three days? Well, not exactly. My Lord Blackwater, you're probably not going to believe this. The Blackwater Ethercast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Anita Zeisman. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Today's entertainment was from Richard III by William Shakespeare. Follow the Baron on Instagram at Baron Blackwater. Also visit lordblackwater.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening. Remember, fickle and blow, the flower doth glow. <laughs>